You're listening to the We Lead Well podcast, where well-being matters. This episode is brought to you in partnership with Transform Education Coaching, headteacherchat.com and the Teach Well Alliance. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the one year anniversary of the We Lead Well podcast. I'm so excited that I made it to a year. I can't believe it's a whole year since I first interviewed Steve Waters back in October 2020 about what well-being is. It's been an absolutely amazing year. I've interviewed some sensationally amazing people and I've just learned so much. Firstly though, I want to say thank you to everyone who's listened to the show over the last year and my regular listeners because I know I've got a group of people who religiously tune into every episode. So thank you so much for listening. When I first started to make the podcast, I actually, I decided I would be happy if 10 people listened to it and we are almost reaching 10,000 downloads. So I cannot tell you how pleased I am about that. I just never even thought I would ever get 10,000 listeners. So that's just amazing. And I'm hoping that those downloads have really helped school leaders or teachers or school staff to understand more about well-being and to understand how they can look after their own well-being and look after the well-being of their staff and create cultures in which well-being is a priority. The podcast can't happen without guests. So I want to say thank you to every single guest who has been on the show. They have all been brilliant and brought a different perspective different ideas, advice and opinions on well-being and how it can be improved in schools. And I hope that you've learned just as much as I have from listening to the amazing guests that we've had on the show. I think I've learned more making the podcast this last year than I did on all of the training and CPD that I attended as a senior leader. I've just learned so much. I think now if I were to go and be a head teacher, I could do it so much better than I would have been able to before I started making the podcast because there's just been so much amazing professional development on it. So many ideas for how you can lead a school more effectively. 
and it's just been an absolutely steep learning curve for me. So today on the anniversary episode, I've got, it's a really long interview, so you really need to um, sit down, get a cup of tea and some biscuits and settle in for this one because it's a long one but I can assure you it is a really really good one. Andrew Earle is fantastic. So Andrew works for a local authority and he helps schools to implement restorative approaches to behaviour and for me the thing that is really key in school work is relationships and the work that Andrew does with the restorative approach is all about building relationships. He calls it a model for relational working and that is the key for me. It's about how you build relationships. It's about teaching people to build relationships more effectively, to have more empathy, to be able to make connections with people, to be able to understand that behaviour is communication and to really try to get to the bottom of what's happening when a child is not behaving in school or equally when you are struggling to connect with a member of staff as well. I think it can really help in that respect too. So you're going to learn a lot today you might have a bit of a a visceral reaction to this and it might initially strike you as something that you don't want to adopt because it feels like it's a bit woolly or namby-pamby or nicey-nicey. But I would advise you to listen to what Andrew says in this interview because it could be the difference between having a huge impact on the lives of the children and the staff that you work with or not. So here's the interview. Enjoy it. It's with Andrew Earle. Andrew Earle, welcome to the We Lead Well podcast. It's great to have you with us today. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Excellent. So as always, we start the podcast by giving you the opportunity to tell us all about yourself, tell us about what you've done in education and what you do now. Yeah, thank you. Um, So I started off... um, about 15 years ago as a as an NQT in um, in Trafford in a very lovely affluent junior school um, and after a couple of years I decided um, that I wanted to experience life in an inner city school um, which lots of people tried to talk me out of <laughs> <laughs> um, but I got a job in North Manchester so I worked in Blakely um, oh, for a couple yeah. of years um, which was a very eye-opening experience um, and really, I suppose that's where I came first came across um, working with children with um, needs beyond just learning. Um, and yeah, so that was where I first introduced really to, to children who needed more than just the learning activities. So they needed a relationship, they needed connection, um, they needed nurture um, in order to, to really thrive, I suppose. Um, and I kind of moved on from there and did, I was key stage two lead in a school in sale for a few years. And then I got a deputy head job in, um, in Salford um, at a school that, that served a community that was, that was very complex. So um, the community was affected by like socioeconomic deprivation and organized crime, racial tension, 
um, and really just a sort of a, a value system that sat well beyond the values that we were trying to advocate in school. Um, and I was deputy there for three years and then I became head teacher. Um, and I did that for about 18 months, which was really rewarding, but incredibly difficult and complicated and, and stressful. Um, so I decided that I needed to take a break and get a bit of perspective on my career before I died of a heart attack and never saw my family again. Um, which was which was one of one of the two things I think was, was inevitable to occur very very shortly. Um, so I I, I, re, I did return to class teaching and I was, uh, did some class teaching for a while, um, and then um, I came upon this role that I'm in currently, which is um, restorative approaches lead practitioner for Stockport Behaviour Support Service, um, and I also work fifty percent of the time with Stockport family, which is what Stockport used to describe their social care provision. Um, so that includes things like fostering um, adult social care, um, alcohol and drug dependency team. So, all, you know, those kind of, um, those kind of settings. And really the focus of the role is to, is to use restorative approaches, which is essentially a model for relational working um, in order to improve relationships and um, and fundamentally outcomes for children and young people. Um, but yeah, it's very varied. Um, I do facilitated repair meetings between um, colleagues or families or schools when there's been um, harm's been caused or there's been a, a conflict. Um, and one of the things we're trying to do with trying to support schools with at the minute is, is, is moving away from sanctions to a relationships-based behaviour policy. Um, so trying to recognise need um, as a behaviour as a communication. Um, and we're also, I also deliver quite a lot of training on empathy and closing the empathy gap between professionals, colleagues, children, um, and supporting people in, in understanding their kind of feelings and needs. Um, and that comes from a, a concept called nonviolent communication. Um, which I've experienced in a uh, bit of experience of in the past, which is really interesting um, way of of kind of building connection without understanding that conflict is is inevitable, but that conflict doesn't mean doesn't mean disconnection. You know, we can yeah. have conflict and but still remain connected and and focused. Right. So this has thrown up loads of things for me. So where do I start? So. <laughs> I think before before we started talking, one of the things I was thinking about is that one of the main factors in staff well-being and probably one of the biggest headaches for senior leadership teams is pupil behaviour, isn't it? Yes. Um, and the, the restorative approach that you're talking about is, is an approach that's definitely growing in popularity at the minute, isn't it? So yeah. you've, you sort of alluded to what... Um, a restorative approach to behaviour is but can you give us a bit more of a detailed explanation you know if a head is thinking about changing their approach to behaviour yeah what do they need to know about the restorative approach and how might it work for them in a school now your your primary your background's yeah. primary isn't it yeah, that's um, right, yeah so is it something that would work in a secondary school sort of equally as well um, I think it would. Um, I do do some work in secondaries. Um, the difference, main, the main difference in secondary is the scale 
of relationships. So there's more children and more staff and therefore more relationships. Um, it's the, the research that's been done on it, there's been a number of case studies where pe people have trialed it. Um, and it has had an impact in primary and it has had an impact in secondary. I think you just have to understand that the logistics are different. And, and some of the strategies that you put into place might not be exactly the same because the children and young people um, are coming into contact with more adults than they would in a primary school. Um, but it's, yeah, but there are some, some secondaries that have adopted it really successfully. And some secondaries in Stockport who use aspects of it um, because there are different sort of ways into it really. If I give you kind of a broad perspective, so um, essentially at its heart, restorative approaches is an ethos and a culture. And, it's, and it comes from restorative justice. And restorative justice, um, I suppose the difference is that restorative justice seeks to, seeks to make things right when harm's been caused. Restorative practice or restorative approaches is about building and maintaining meaningful relationships and repairing harm when it's been caused. So there's a proactive and a reactive element to it. Um, and what we, what the, the main kind of model that we use is like a relational triangle. So if you imagine the triangle split into three layers, the bottom layer is building relationships and that's based on values. So shared values that are relational. Um, so things like um, honesty, equity, respect, um, dignity, trust, um, inclusion, they're all relational values. The middle layer of the triangle is maintaining relationships, so that's skills. So that's things like empathy, remaining non-judgmental, um, active listening, um, seeing behaviours, communication and reading it, emotional literacy. Um, so they're the skills that you need to, um, to maintain those relationships. And then the, the top part of the triangle is repair. So that's probably the bit the schools access the most. Um, is a is and that, that includes a repair script, um, and each of the questions on the repair script has a theme that sits behind it, um, and essentially you use the repair script either informally, so you can use it in an informal way all the way up to a very formal facilitated repair conference, which might involve a number of people or adults, and he's unpicking very complex situation. Um, so that's how we, re and I suppose a good way to summarize it is we talk about it being, being relational all of, all of the time on purpose. So you're not just relying on your natural relationships that you build as a human, you're recognizing that it's a skill and that skill needs to be consciously and actively developed and employed. Um, because the, the, high, the, basically the more meaningful the relationships you make with colleagues and children, the easier it is to repair them when they go wrong and more learning is going to take place because there's more connection and, and more harmony in the in the community i mean this is this is sort of the basic stuff of humanity isn't it this is just if we can <laughs> teach children how to build better relationships they can have a better life can't they i mean my yeah. my firm belief is that everything in a school is based on having positive relationships with other people and developing those relationships um yeah. and in a lot of schools the the behavior systems are punitive aren't they so they're based on sort of rewards and sanctions and yeah. punishment when you when you do something that's considered to be wrong or against the rules so yeah. why is restorative why is a restorative behavior system an approach better than 
what most schools, I would think it's most schools who use that punitive sort of sanctions and rewards type behaviour policy. Why is the restorative approach better than that? Well, the sanctions sanctions and punishment is, is societal, societally informed. We adopt that from the way we see our societies operate. So we have a criminal justice system which involves crimes, punishments, and very often what we want in school as, a, as an adult or as a, as a professional is that we want to see a pattern that we're familiar with or that we understand. And very often we also link it to our previous experience of school. So most people will have been to a school where punishment was, was, was the response to breaking the rules. So from that concept, we get the idea that if we don't punish, we almost haven't dealt with the situation or it hasn't been addressed um, or that the child, the child, the child, or the young person's got away with it. But from a restorative point of view, what we're recognising is that actually our, our behaviour is driven by need. So when we have those unmet needs, we're communicating that unmet need through behaviour, and there'll be feelings attached to it. So actually, if we work proactively to consider how do we meet need as much as possible in whatever school setting we have, it looks different for every school then we're going to minimise those behaviour disruptions. We're going to understand the children more. They're going to understand us. Um, so therefore, the need for... And I think I want to be clear that it doesn't mean restoratively that you don't have expectations or boundaries. Um, you do, but you you don't enforce them explicitly through sanctions or punishments. Um, so it's not that, like, you know, in a restorative school, everybody does whatever they want and there's no challenge. Um, absolutely challenge and boundaries and expectation um, a really important part of restorative approaches but it's recognizing that we're going to get there through meaningful relationships and really looking at the information about punishment there's not a lot of data to support punishment as an effective deterrent um, if you look at the statistics around children in custody um, which we did some research on before the before some training that I delivered recently about 48 percent of children in custody have been permanently excluded um, the vast majority of them have been in care. Um, there's, you know, there's, there's, there's no real, um, there's no real support to for, for for that kind of mindset, other than instinctively or traditionally we think it works. Um, and I suppose that's one of the hard things to overcome. Yeah, um, it's because it's, that's grained into people. It's funny because you said you worked in sale and I worked in sale. I worked at Ashton on Mersey School in sale, mm. which you which you're probably familiar with. And yes. it was I think it was like something like their 50th anniversary and they had all the old punishment books out. So they'd when they when one of the teachers had slippered one of the children or used corporal punishment, they wrote it down in a book. And I was really interested as you flick through this book you can see the same names. Yeah. It's a list of the same names who were in the head's office having the cane or the slipper or whatever it was. And it just reinforced for me that <laughs> that sort of approach, it doesn't work. It's never worked. When, you, no. when you've got detentions, you do that. <laughs> I used to have to do the, the detention one day a week. And at the last school I was at, all the children came to detention. SLT member was there and then they were picked up. It was always the same children in that room. <laughs> it was yeah. just there was there was no impact of the detentions whatsoever because it was the same kids who just kept going back and back and back. And yet we blindly in schools 
follow this that's the best that's the best route to take i i believe that behavior is communication like you're saying um one of the difficulties that i find is and i feel sorry for these children but the way that they behave often is it makes them seem unlikable to members of staff but the reason that they do that is to is to reinforce the image that they've got of themselves that they are unlikable and clearly i am unlikable so all those members of staff they don't like me either so it's like a bit of a vicious cycle for some isn't it and it, it yeah. causes a lot of conflict and it's yeah. about a member of staff understanding isn't it why that child behaves like that like get into the core of what is it that they're trying to communicate to you or that you know what's the issue at the core of it and the restorative approach really focuses on that doesn't it yeah yeah it does yeah so very often punishment or or that kind of punitive approach meets the adult's need for control um you know so lots of people who are and we're all drawn into education for different reasons but the things that draw us into education there'll be there'll be there'll be needs that drive that so for example my initial sort of route into education was purely about learning i loved learning i loved learning about things i had a real um i almost said i had a real passion i still have a real passion for life <laughs> sometimes it, sometimes it fades um but but then as I, as i say like when i started to get more into understanding inclusion it became about relationships as well and 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 having those meaningful relationships and 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 it, it was a it was a philosophy on life it was about including people in society it was about making communities that 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 don't exclude and marginalize others um so i think the reason that um those those that connections really important is if we take that 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 member of staff that teacher who might be having a difficult relationship with with a young person you know that young person's behavior is probably preventing them from meeting some of their key needs so they might not be they might not be able to get on with the learning they might not be they might be you know they might not be able to be as calm as they want to be in the classroom they might not be able to have the order and the discipline that they want they might be embarrassed or humiliated by the way it's perceived of from others that they're not that they can't control this child or that they yeah. can't you know so a lot of the work that that needs to happen to move to move to that relational way of working is about understanding those needs that drive us recognizing that other people have needs as well and if we can if we can compassionately connect those needs or find ways of meeting each other's needs you know so for example I'll talk a lot about short term versus long term gain so if you invest in a relationship with a young person who can present challenging behavior it's going to take up a lot of time now it's going to save you an immense amount of time in the future because you're not going to be constantly repeating having that difficult challenge because once you build trust trust is the sort of pathway to those really you know key relate like effective relationships and when they break down it's much easier to repair if there was trust in the first place you know relationships that that were very very fragile to, in the beginning are very hard to repair you know so that's why in terms of like the ethos and the culture we encourage people not to just adopt the repair bit we we say you know that it is about a, a whole a whole way of working it's a way of being and it can be quite transformational at its best we do a 3 day training to introduce sort of the main concepts of restorative um and lots of people after that do feel differently on like a personal level as well as a professional level because they might have like a more emotional literacy or they might have thought a little bit about what they value or they might have thought about how to maybe challenge things that they're not happy with 
Um, so it's about, you know, it's 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 taking that dynamic between that one person and that young person, which is causing conflict, and just reframing it in a in a different way and thinking, well, what can we do in the first place to prevent that happening? And then when it does happen, what can we do to support those people in in rebuilding that connection and, and repairing that relationship and understanding each other better? It's that understanding that um, you know sometimes is 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 missed out. You know, like the the teacher just communicating to the to the to the young people or the class, you know, why they want people to listen to them, why they want the children to follow the rules, why they want everybody to you know put their hand up when they're going to contribute if that's something that you know giving give understanding and rationale and, and linking it to who we are it's more compelling for other people to you know to follow it or explaining to them how their behavior can have a positive impact on on their feelings um which is a another good strategy to to develop connection it's interesting because a lot of the things that you're speaking about now you're speaking about sort of teacher pupil relationships but they are equally as relevant most of them not all of them but they are equally as relevant to staff relationships like relationships between staff and how you build that that I suppose the values based thing so I've got two questions from this number one do you get a lot of resistance to it in the schools that you go in do you get people who go oh my god this is ridiculous it's so much we need we need a we need punishment I know there was a long discussion on Twitter the other week this is where my interest was piqued by people saying like you've got to you've got to have rewards and sanctions you've got to have punishments do you get people who resist it um yeah, absolutely, and, and and I think the the challenge with restorative approaches is, and probably one of the difficulties about my role, is that it is about um, convincing someone of the vision and adopting it voluntarily. If you imagine, it's like if if you say to someone, "You must use this restorative approaches method," you've lost before <laughs> you started because it's about honesty and transparency and, and openness. You're being a hypocrite think, as well, aren't you? If you yeah, do that, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> So I think it's you know it's it's a it's a vision for a way of being. It can be quite dependent upon the vision of the senior leadership team in the school that you're working with. So you know if you um, if you're if the leaders are on the side of or tending towards like control as a as their as their sort of go to um, in times of, of difficulty or crisis, that can be harder because restorative is about being collaborative and, and being open and honest. I'm not saying that you never have to go into that sort of directive box because you do with safeguarding or, you know, some situations, but there's a vulnerability that you need to show to build relationships. And if you're not able to show that vulnerability, you know, if you think about punishment, punishment allows us to stay at a distance. You know, if I punish a child, I don't have to connect with them at all. You know, I can just say, right, you're in detention or you've lost this much of your golden time or move your name, you know, up the traffic lights or whatever it is. So I can I can stay totally disengaged from that relationship. Whereas if, um, you know, if I have to, if, if you've got a restorative approach and you're thinking, right, I want to understand your, you know, presenting this behavior, you know, there's, and obviously you've got some feelings going on there. I want to try and understand those, understand what need, how can I meet that need? Can I meet it in a different way? Can I support you meeting that need yourself? So you need to use me less. That's a dynamic and that requires effort and energy and, and thought. Um, so it's really kind of like the, I would say that 
people don't people don't offer open resistance, but I think some people might go away think, feeling quite skeptical about its about its effectiveness. Um, and in some in some ways, quite rightly, if the school doesn't adopt it as a whole school strategy, um, I suppose one of the questions people often ask is, does it work? So if, if, if I'm more relational, will that make other people more relational to me? And I say, well, no, it means that you're true to, you stay true to your values. And if you came into education being values-based, then you know, you're not, you can't control what other people do. Like you can't control children, you can influence them, but you can't control them. So if you stay, or, or you're walking away with that, that sense of integrity, you know, I was, I was as relational as possible, or I was as restorative as possible, um, in that situation, that doesn't mean the other person will be, but it's a, a ten times easier for them to be relational if you are. Um, you know, if you remain detached, then they're going to remain, remain detached as well. Well, most of the time. It, I absolutely love this approach. All of the things that you say just chime so much with my values, and I know I've worked with people who would call this sort of totally, you know, woolly a sort of namby-pamby approach or whatever you know um but one of the things that you refer to it really strongly is values and your yeah. pin your pinned tweet on your twitter feed it it says your values are not what's up on the wall published in the prospectus or on the website your values are defined by the behavior actions attitudes and choices of your staff team shine a light into all those dark corners and I, I really love that. I worked at a school where there were four words that were up on, on the wall. One of them was respect um, and three other words that the head had chosen, you know, that they were going to be the values of the school. With, yeah. There was no discussion with, with the staff or the, or the kids. It was just, you know, they were there. And this sort of reminded me of that. Um, and... I wondered why you'd pinned that at the top of your, your Twitter feed <laughs> and what it, what it is you want leaders to understand about values. Because to me, values are yeah. absolute key to your well-being. Like yeah. you, you, can't have, you can't be mentally well and have that sense of well-being of both body and mind unless you know what your values are and you can lead an authentic life yeah. that's, that's underpinned by your values so what what do you want leaders to understand about values why why are you so obsessed with values <laughs> <laughs> i am obsessed with values i am thank you thank you um so i'd say so so i'm quite inspired by the writing of certain sort of um leadership uh, like visionaries i suppose like stephen covey and I know one of one of Stephen Covey's most popular books is The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. But he's written another book called Principle Centered Leadership, which isn't about education per se, but it's about the link between your values as a person and your values in a leadership role and how those two things are completely intertwined. And he talks about how if you lead an organization with transparent values that are you know, for the benefit of the company or the school or um, whatever organization you're working for, as those values spread out, people will make decisions linked to those values. So your organization gradually becomes more and more aligned to the values that you hold. So 
I think the reason why I care about them so much, I suppose, is I, sp- I guess there's two sides. There's two sides to it. So, as a head teacher, I felt like it was my absolute key tool in maintaining morale and well-being, vision and values. Because we worked in a school, myself and the, and the team that worked with me at the time, that had all the complexities that you could imagine. So it was a, a job that was five times harder than another job that they could possibly get in another school in a, dif- in, a, in, a, in a different community. And it would have had different challenges completely. But when I say five times harder, I suppose what I mean is if you wanted to learn how to teach there as an NQT or an early career teacher, you'd be learning how to teach and manage behavior and work with, work with parents that could offer a lot of challenge and, um, you know, and be dealing with quite low academic standards. So you were taking on a lot of fronts. So without the vision for serving that community to break the cycle of deprivation and allow those, some of those children to make better choices in life and, and escape poverty. Like we, I felt like, that was my most compelling tool. And that, that vision, vision and values to me are essentially one and the same thing. So, you know, the, your vision's like the destination, the values are how you're gonna get there. And then I think for me, the reason why I left my headship became, it became impossible to live those values. And for, for a number of different reasons, partly it was, it was my responsibility because I made some appointments that um, of, of senior leaders that, that weren't able to live the values and and that became very difficult. Um, but partly because the solutions that were often being presented to me by, you know, um, pe- people outside the school was permanent exclusion. You know, all you need to do is permanently exclude this child, this child, this child, this child, and, you know, the challenge will be lots less and you can, you know, get back on track and, I just wasn't willing to do that. Um, and I think that living those values means that you can stay true to yourself and you can stay in touch with like who you are and why you came into education in the first place. Before we find out more from Andrew about why he's so obsessed with values, I'd like to share a little bit of information about our partner, Head Teacher Chat. Head Teacher Chat discusses lots of topics from how to support pupils with learning, how to support parents, and the many issues that come with leading a school. The aim of Head Teacher Chat is to support head teachers and school leaders who are in a challenging and often lonely role. They do this by offering lots of information for schools to tap into. For example, they have lots of fantastic education companies on their database for leaders to discover, as well as leadership templates to download. They've written product reviews for leaders who are looking for products for their school. And this year, They've even launched the very first School Leader Planner, especially designed to help leaders to be productive and organised. If you'd like to hear more about Head Teacher Chat, you can find them on their website at www.headteacherchat.com. Head Teacher Chat. It's what head teachers are talking about. Now let's get back to the interview. Part, maybe the reason why I've become obsessed with them. <laughs> I like the idea that I'm obsessed with them. <laughs> Um, is that so many of the conversations that I have when I go into school, and a lot of the time, initially, I might just meet the head teacher and we just have a, a conversation, coaching, coaching style conversation, I suppose you could describe it. It'll come back to, but what do you value and where do you want the school to be? Because if you're unraveling 
conflict or a, or um, a needs clash or even a values clash, you know, kindness versus inclusion, fairness versus respect, um, like uh, well-being versus, you know, um, that kind of relentless support of, of, of children or well-being versus children first, say. It's quite an often, often yeah. clash. Yeah. So where, how do you navigate that? Without without thinking, well, what do, what what do you value, and what do I value, and, and and why? Because if you've got that, then when you're talking to those colleagues and those members of staff, your decision making is transparent, it's clear, and it's honest. Because you might be saying something really difficult, but you're saying it because. So if I'm saying to someone, I'm not willing to permanently exclude this child, even though he causes lots of disruption in your class, or you know, there's been, and it's because this, 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 and this is the vision of our school, and, they, and people know it. I think it just makes that decision-making a lot easier and a lot easier to understand. Because if you think about the issues that, that, that I feel happen a lot in school around well-being, lack of communication, unclear decision-making, not understanding what's going on, changing roles, um, too much expectation or too much responsibility. Yeah. So all of that really is a lack of clarity. And that lack of clarity, or oh, Stephen Covey wrote this other really good book <laughs> <laughs> called First Things First. And in, in that, he, he talks really clearly about how you make decisions as, a, as an effective leader and, and what you spend your time doing. And when you read that, you realize how the biggest difference you can make for the most of the time is is balancing long-term and short-term needs and, and vision-based. But what you can do to kid yourself that, you, that, you, that you're managing things is all the other stuff that's around that because it's actually really hard to do that. It actually takes a lot out of you and it takes a lot of strength. But to me, and this is where I suppose I get a bit frustrated with the restorative approaches, blah, blah, blah. It's all woolly and fluffy and you're just saying yes to everyone. It's not actually. It's the definition of really strong leadership because if, as a leader, if I'm willing to be vulnerable and honest and say no and build relationships then i'm doing more than someone who sits in a control box or someone who sits in a doing for and i'll do everything for you and i won't expect anything of you actually i'm in a i'm in a position where i'm sacrificing and and growing and changing myself in order to in order to facilitate that collaboration so i think the the values i don't know i guess I don't know how you escape it. I don't. I don't know how you. I don't know how you lead, particularly particularly schools that serve complex communities. Don't know how you lead. Don't know how you lead them without considering your values, and without using them to 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 guide you in making those quite difficult decisions that you often have to make. I think it's. I think it's so key, isn't it? That you know, if I were ahead. I was a deputy. I could have been ahead. I chose not to be, and I've not ruled it out at some point in the future going back into it but that is the first thing I would do on going into a school I would sit every member of staff in the school or all the staff staff who work in the office site staff cleaners everybody and say what are our values in the school what are the values of this school you know what are your values what are our values and then what are our sort of what are our shared values where do we share values and then use that to develop to, to, to use it as a starting point to start developing the culture of a, mm. of a school. And I think so many 
so many heads forget to do that when they go into a school and sometimes it's like <laughs> it's like that class when you were an NQT that you were too nice to when you went in and then you never got it, then you could never get it back then. It was just chaos every time you went in the classroom because you can't go back and, and redo it. I guess you can. I suppose you can, if you're ahead, you can stop and say, look, what are our values? The other thing that I wanted to ask you about that you mentioned um, is the empathy gap. What is that? So if you, I suppose, if, if, if you say we like to step away from from just from education for a minute and we look at human relationships and and I guess the sort of where restorative approaches came from in the first place and, and why people felt like it was important. To me, like there's um there's a danger that in, in society and in communities that we're we're disconnecting a lot from from each other. And I think you can attribute that to lots of different things. So you can attribute it to maybe to more use of technology rather than you know um, social interaction um, because there's more information in the media it can be more divisive so there's more issues to divide people over um, and because of like the algorithms around social media what tends to happen is you tend to be grouped with people who share the same views as you yeah uh, this is like kind of how they sort of work which I'm sure creates very supportive communities for lots of people. And, and I'm saying all this in a non-judgmental way. Um, this is just my observation. So as a result, there's, there, can, there can be like an empathy divide that, that sort of um, opens up between groups or people or you know, individuals. And to me, it's restorative approaches and, and some other sort of things like nonviolent communication are a way of closing that empathy gap so it doesn't have to be like that like we can choose to connect more repair more judge less um, understand more um, so the empathy gap so really it's a, it's a piece of training that i developed for behavior support service um, and i've kind of adapted it depending on who i'm working with so i've done it with some colleagues in support service i've done it with primary colleagues i did it at secondary school last week actually um, and it's about using some of those principles of nonviolent communication about feelings and needs and recognizing that empathy is very different to sympathy. So I can be sympathetic without putting any emotional energy into it at all. Like if someone's going through a bad time, I can say, oh, I'm really sorry that, you know, that's happened to you and not give it a second thought. In essence, it can, it can kind of be dismissive. Um, but actually, if, if I'm being empathetic, I might not have had the same experience as you but I'll be able to connect with the feeling that you're feeling because I might have experienced loss or regret or embarrassment or humiliation or shame. Yeah. Um, so I'll link, I'll connect with that feeling and that will draw me to a more vulnerable human place where we might be able to establish a, a connection as, as, as two humans. So I think for me, it's, it's something that, you know, I'm, I am really passionate about. And um, I suppose for me, it started from my experience leading in a very challenging context and how I had to spend a, a, a massive amount of time and energy empathizing with the people that I was that I was talking to whether I was managing them whether they were parents whether they were children who came to the you know came to the school whether they were members of the local community I was constantly thinking about but like I've got needs but you've got needs too so if we want to be inclusive think about inclusion 
inclusion doesn't have like a brackets except children that are really complicated or except people who get on our nerves or except <laughs> parents that are confrontational. Do you know what I mean? It's, if you, it's if you unfortunate that, isn't it? Because I'd like to think it doesn't, but in a lot of schools it does. Inclusion yeah. does not, yeah. like a school say we are an inclusive school, but yeah. then then they will exclude pupils or there are staff yeah. there who, one of the things that struck me when you were talking is sort of the idea of a lot of teachers label children you know they'll they'll put a label on a child as always is not that that kid's just naughty or that that kid's like that and that kid's like that and that label sort of defines that child for that member of staff then without them actually thinking what is causing that behavior or what I've done a lot of reading about relationships and a lot of conflict is caused in relationships because of sort of the things that you're saying, like the feelings and the needs that you've got are feelings that come from things that have happened a long time ago in the past to you that yeah. you still hold a belief about yourself because of it, or it still yeah. creates some sense of a lot of it's about fear, isn't it? It's the, yeah. it's the yeah. fear of something. Fear. And Trauma. it's about working out what it is. That's what, what is, what's this person I was doing some work with with someone um in a relationship and um not just like just a relationship between two people and one of them um like had said no I don't want you to do that blah blah and had been really objective about it and I had to get the other person to think right okay what is it that's driving that objection do you think where is it coming from there's some sort of fear there because that they're you know they're so against it that there's something and when that other person started thinking oh right okay perhaps it or maybe it's that or it could be you could see then and they came back to me afterwards and said oh we sorted it all out and it was fine because when I went into it I said I just asked the question what's the fear why don't you want to do that and it sort of opened things up and cleared the air and yeah yeah. I mean if you think about a really simple example so if you're delivering like training, particularly inset training where there's a lot of people, um, normally everybody will come in and sit down in the place that they've chosen. So what we try to do if we're doing any restorative training is we try to help people build connections. So at some point we'll mix people around. So they move and they, and they have to go somewhere else. The discomfort that causes in adults can be huge. And you get these constant, you, often you get questions like, can I, do I take my stuff? Do I get my stuff and take it? Do I take my coat? Do I take my, can I get this? Can I get that? How long will it be there for? I'm going to have to sit here for the rest of the day. <laughs> but then if we think about the, what we ask children to do, change their places all the time, move from lesson to lesson, you know, get on with people that they might not know at all, you know, and, and all the time taking risks and learning. So not, you know, just sitting there and connecting and chatting and, you know, and talking straight away, sit down, right. Listen to me, follow the rules, get on. And it's that, it's, it's, it's that recognition that, that, that we just, we just all have those needs. And if we tune into them, um, like facilitated repair, if when I do facilitated repair meetings, very often what sits under that is betrayal. So trust broken. So, you know, um, and therefore, more and more allegations come out or recriminations or, um, you know, uh, sort of real like resentment and, and, and a difficult relationship. But then when you go back, when you go through the process, 
and you restore the trust, all of a sudden those other things disappear. Because really what was underneath it was, I don't trust you anymore because you did this thing and I feel betrayed. But how that's presented, you can add layers and layers and layers and layers of like complicated behaviors presenting that. But when you go through it all, underneath it, that's what that's often what's what what the case is. Is that thing of, you know, I just you you let me down or disappointed or I don't trust you anymore or um and it's amazing how we how we mask that as adults. Yeah, I, it's, it's blowing my mind a bit, this, because I've got so, it's like so <laughs> many like things that are coming up for me. Because one of the things that I always do with when I'm coaching, if someone's talking about a relationship with someone, a line manager or someone that they work with or someone in their department who's being really awkward and not they're not doing what they're being asked to do or they're, they're doing things that, that are getting on that person's nerves, I always get them to do a, right, okay, let's do an empathy-based character analysis of them. So let's start thinking about why they might be behaving like that and get them to, to, to try to put themselves in that person's head and think about why they're behaving that way. And I think that's a really, for me, that's a good activity to do in terms of empathy because it always brings things up. Like they get some like light bulb moments where they're like, oh, of course that's why they're doing that or that's why they behaved like that or said that and it can change their behavior as well the other thing that that's brought up for me is the idea of conflict and you mentioned it earlier because it's something in life that we can't avoid but it's something that lots of people try to avoid and I think yeah. it leads to all sorts of problems in relationships when yeah. conflict is avoided and nothing is said about something because it creates, it can create bad feeling, but it also, it's a sense of once you've let that go, you set your expectation. Then if you've not dealt with that, whatever yeah. it was that was causing yeah. the problem, that is always going to like be the basis for everything from uh, as you move forward. So if you've not had a, a, com a conversation with someone about something that they've done that was below expectations, you set that as your expectation then don't you so what a lot of people ask me about is like how can I have a call it a difficult conversation like or a, how can I like manage conflict more effectively and you talked about a facilitated repair meeting so tell me a bit more about that and what one, one of those sort of looks like and you talked about there being a script for it as well so can you tell me a bit more about that yeah of course yeah so um one of the um, one of the reasons that facilitated repair comes about is because we use this quote: um, "If you try to keep the peace, you start a war within yourself." Yeah. And essentially, <laughs> it comes from the concept that you have to communicate your feelings and needs effectively for you to be like at peace with them. Otherwise, you're going to create internal conflict, and what people often find difficult with, with, with difficult or challenging conversations is they've got competing needs. So they might have the need to be liked or the need to be seen as friendly or the need to be seen as a good person versus the need to, you know, uh, maintain like high standards or to fulfill their role. And if one of those takes over the other one, they'll find it really difficult. The problem is their thoughts and feelings don't go away. They just internalize them. 
So mm-hmm. they then start acting on that internalized feeling. Um, so for example, with facilitated repair, what might happen is that somebody might contact um, myself or, or the behavior support service and tell us that like um, a relationship's broken down. So most often it's between a school and a family, um, but it can be between colleagues in a school and I have done them between parents as well. Yeah, the, the things that have happened on school premises. So essentially there's, there's, there's three parts to it. So the first part is to meet meet both, meet, meet the affected parties separately. And we go through a series of questions. So those questions are based on what do you think's happened? What are your thoughts and feelings? How has it affected you and who's been affected? Um, what, do you, um, what do you need to feel better? And you know, what, can, what can happen next, basically? And there's a sort of a, a theme behind each one of those um, questions. So like the, th- the theme behind the first question is unique perspective, for example. So I'm not there to establish the truth I'm there to listen to what you think has happened because my view is irrelevant. So I'm a non-judgmental facilitator. I'm not, I'm, all I'm doing is asking these questions, listening. It's very like, it's very much like a coaching conversation. So yeah. you just ask, you're asking lots of questions, eliciting responses and, and, and clarifying, but not clarifying in a framed way, because if you clarify in a framed way, you're pushing your opinion on them. So you've got to be quite, you've got to be quite specific about, the words that you use and the language that you use and then so it's all voluntary if both people then are then willing we progress to a face-to-face meeting and essentially we repeat the same process and the same questions but they're saying it to each other yeah um, and then when you get to the point at the end where they're talking about what do they need to feel what do they need to, to put things right it, it depends on the situation sometimes the phraseology what do you need to feel better is appropriate. Sometimes what do you need to put things right is appropriate. What do you need to move on is sometimes appropriate. Yeah. And then essentially they can, they can, they've got an opportunity then to make a request of each other to agree or, or disagree to that request. Um, and then normally a couple of weeks later, we, we follow, follow up. Um, I follow up and see how, see whether the, you know, things have, things have improved. Um, and I'd say it's effective about 80% of the time, 89% right. of the time. Um, that was going to be my next question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's because what most people ask is, does it work? Yeah. Yes, it what, works. Um, yeah. What can you take from that? So if I, if I were in a situation at work where someone's done something and yes. I know I have to go and have this conversation with them, but I, I really don't want to have the conversation one of the things that I've started calling at like rather than um, conflict or a challenging or difficult conversation is I've started to call it a curious conversation. So, yeah. so, I te- so my advice is to go into the conversation as though you're trying to find out what's happening from that person's perspective. Like this yes. is a situation. I'm just really interested to know how you perceive that or what happened from your perspective or so it's just sort of open in that kind of way is there any other advice that you would give sort of based on that because there seems to be a really nice structure to that facilitated conversation that says you know you are really important in this and what you think and feel is important 
yeah. to this, to resolving yeah. this conflict. Yeah. And here's a space where you can be listened to and you can say what you think and feel and you can say things from your perspective that nobody's going to disagree with you. Nobody's going to like suggest that, you know, because it's like you're saying that's your truth. And I think sometimes yes. we forget that everybody has their own truth. And what happened might be different for different people. There's never a true, there's never like a factual, this is exactly what happened because it's all about perspectives. It's all yeah. about someone's role in something, how they see it, what's happened, how they were feeling at the time. So there's all sorts of sort of factors that are involved in creating that narrative and it's different for everybody else. So how would you advise someone to go about yeah. that meeting where you've got to walk in there and say have you got a minute <laughs> yeah i think there's some really key components to it and you have to really think about your capacity to do them so let's take listening most people are really poor at listening and that's partly because they're not used to listening in an environment where um they they don't have an agenda so if you think about most leaders or most people in leadership positions, when they're going to a meeting with somebody or a group of people, nine times out of 10, they've got an idea in their head of how they want that meeting to go. And they're going to structure their behaviours and the things that they say around creating that outcome. What you have to do with it if you want to listen or you, or you want to really connect and listen to someone is you've really got to suspend all of your personal agenda items. So for example, don't do it when you've only got 20 minutes and halfway through you're going to say, or oh, I'm, I'm sorry, we've got to finish there. Because you're you're imposing your agenda on that, you know, on that on that particular meeting. Do you want to listen or do you not want to listen? You've got to decide. And then if you do want to listen, think about those personal agenda items, suspend them really focus on what the person's saying. And if your body language is poor, work on it. So if you don't look people in the face, if you don't stay still, if you, um, you know, if you, if you get distracted, don't take anything with you that's going to distract you. So, you know, you know, try to create that kind of space. And I think that the, the, the really key thing, and this is what people find really, really hard is just listen in the first instance without responding so don't defend yourself don't don't argue back don't um don't emotionally react don't make a judgment and that's what people find really really difficult because they're listening to someone who's basically saying stuff about them they don't like or given a perspective that they don't want to be true and they don't want they don't want that to be the, they don't want that to be the case because it might make their their kind of uh challenge more difficult so if you really want to listen, then choose to listen, but accept that it's going to be hard, particularly if it's about a decision you've made or if it's about the relationship you have with that person. But if you don't listen to them in that, when you've offered it, they won't, they won't speak, they won't tell you again. They won't trust you again to, to share what they really think. You've got to establish that authentic, meaningful connection. They've got to believe that you really want to understand what they've got to say. So where do you go from there? Because you've got to say well, something eventually, haven't you? You have, yeah. And, <laughs> I, and I think this is this is where empathy sometimes is a little bit misconstrued. So 
sometimes empathy is, is um, shown as like, you're just going to um, relent and do whatever the, the other person's asking for. But that's not true. And that's why, that's why vision and values become so important because you might have a really difficult decision to make and you might have to go away, think about what that person said and still decide to do the same thing anyway. But the difference is that they will feel like they were genuinely listened to, whereas most people with most decisions will say things to me like, nobody listened, I was just dismissed, I was just snubbed. They didn't, you know, even say like staffing decisions, for example, I need you to go and work with in a different place today or I need you to go and work with a different child. You know, sometimes just the, 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 the recognition and the understanding behind that, you know, if you've got two minutes to say to that person, how do you feel about that? And then listen to them and say, I'm really sorry that I can't change it. However, I'm really glad that you've told me because now I know where you're up to and, and if we can do something about it next time, I'll try and do something about it. So it's not about, it's not about relenting. It's about, and, and, and also it's about choosing whether you want to listen or not. Like don't pretend, you know, don't pretend, be authentic. If it's an emergency and it's and and you have to make a decision and that is how you're going to lead, then you can explain that, you know, and you can say that you know um, this is a there's a. I, I suppose I always sort of think about to make that decision or to think about it from a leadership perspective. What's at stake? What's at stake if you? Um, have a conversation and, and have a listening conversation or if you don't have a listening conversation because really it's, it's, it's the same with those like you know those curious conversations what's at stake if you don't have that conversation well actually it might be provision for children it might be the well-being of that staff member it might be you know something really pivotal for school improvement because that's always at always linking back to that what's at stake that links you back to you, like your vision and your values. I've not explained that very clearly. I'm sorry, but oh, I think I, I really think you have. I really think you have, because I think there's a there's a process, isn't there? It's uh, the dog. I said she would come in at some point. She just barged her way in, but she likes she likes making an appearance on the program. Um, so it's like it's it's asking that is the key question to ask, isn't it? When you've got that moment of conflict and you think I really need to go and speak to that person about this. Because the time scale, it's narrow, isn't it? Your time frame, like, there's only so long that you've got for actually addressing whatever issue it is before it's too late, before it's, like, the moment's gone and you can't address it then. There's a, there's a window of time, isn't there? And it's so important to ask that question, what is at stake if I don't have this conversation? What's the impact yeah. going to be? What is yeah. the wider impact going to be of me yeah. not having the courage to have this conversation? And I think there's a, like, that idea of the empathy gap is, like, if you have that conversation, you close the empathy gap there, don't you? Because you start yeah. to understand where someone's coming from. So that, that conversation also gives you more insight into this person whoever it is, if it's your wife or your husband or you a member of staff in your school or a child who you, you're working with, then actually it, it closes that and it, it helps you to understand their perspective better. And then just listening, just saying, I'm really interested in hearing things from your perspective 
you know, talk to me, what, you know, what was it? And letting them speak and not interrupting and actually just listening. And at the end of the conversation, actually just saying, thank you for being honest. I appreciate your, I really appreciate your honesty. Do you mind if, it might require you then say, do you mind if I go away and just digest the things that you've told me and just have a think about it and then I'll come back to you, you know, and we we can have a conversation again. Or is it appropriate sometimes to say, to, to listen to them and let them get to a point where they've got nothing else to say? And would you, would you suggest that people then would say, can I give you my perspective or can I share my perspective on it? Would you, would you suggest they did that? Yeah, you, you can do. You can offer insight. I think what, what you've got to be careful of is particularly if you're in a leadership position, that there's a higher expectation of you, that you're yeah. less influenced by your 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 feelings and your ego to a certain extent. So, you know, as a leader, one of my ambitions was to present as on an emotionally even keel as much as possible. So, you know, you've got to be careful. Like, I would say you might want to share insight. I wouldn't say that you might want to share all of your thoughts and feelings and and how you, you know, um, what like you, what you've definitely, definitely been going through because there's a power dynamic there yeah. that, you've, that you've got to be really careful of. So I think, you know, offering a rationale and, 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 and perspective. So, for example, if you've made the decision that someone's unhappy with, you might explain why you made that decision or you might explain the evidence that you weighed up to make that decision. Um, or you might explain how that, how that decision supports the school vision and you can say all those things without dismissing the other person's perspective. You can acknowledge that, the, that, that, that from their point of view, that change has been hard or that they might need more support or more training um, or that they, you know, that they weren't expecting it or that it's difficult for them because of their home life and their home situation. You know, there's all these different things that might come into play. Um, but I think I would say is that, you know, it's, it's, it's about... It's about using that using that connection to influence your decision making, not to totally um, ransack and kidnap your decision making, yeah. because then you're going to be inconsistent, and, and and people are going to think, oh well, if I have a conversation with you and tell you how I really feel, then you'll just you'll just agree with me and, and change your mind. So that's often like I think what discourages people from say someone's made a decision and they think in their mind. Well, I'm not changing it because I know it's really important. Yeah. They might then be discouraged from having a listening conversation because they think, well, there's no point because it doesn't matter what that person's thinking. Um, I'm not going to change my mind. What that person's thinking is really important for your connection with them and your leadership going forward. So, you know, even if you're not going to change your mind, have the conversation and talk to them. Or even if you're still going to have to offer them a lot of challenge, have the conversation because you know we want to be challenged by someone who's human we don't want to be challenged by a robot you know you can explain to someone that something's a really difficult decision or that you know that you've thought about it a lot or that you understand that it's going to you know your decision might result in them having a difficult time professionally but just be honest about where it's coming from and and and, and try and stay connected um some people can manage it, some people can't. I wonder how many people have ever had a conversation like that where they've 
gone in and said, okay, you, you know, tell me about it from your perspective. And then at the end of it said, I, I'm really glad you were honest with me there. Thanks very much. And then that would be the end of the conversation. <laughs> it's it's interesting, isn't it? Would you would you suggest um maybe sort of thinking about the questions that you want to ask to find out what you want to know before you speak to someone? Yeah. So if if you if you concerned that someone's perspective might be quite broad, and and some people's perspective is quite broad, and they might draw in lots and lots and lots of things. And let's be clear, we don't have or don't have all an unlimited amount of time. So we're all um, going to have to focus in some kind of way. You might think about asking questions like, what's been the hardest thing for you about this? So you are tr trying to support them in prioritizing where their, where their feelings are. Um, so like with facilitated repair, we might try and repair the most difficult thing about a situation rather than explore every single aspect of what the affected parties are saying. Because if something's historic, you know, there might have been things happening for quite a long time, or there might have been things happening so long ago that nobody really remembers them correctly. They just have thoughts and feelings about them. Would you ask what they would have preferred to have happened? Um, it depends if you want the answer. <laughs> so, you know, because... I mean, these also, are, there are they, it's hard, this, isn't it? Because we're not, we, we, it's like trying to pin down jelly because we don't know what the conversation's about, do we? We've no, not, no. We're just making assertions about things. But um, yeah. I was just wondering if if that was a, an approach to take, what would what, you, you know, how might it, you have, like that sort of, what might yeah, have worked yeah. better for you? You know, why didn't that, why didn't that work for you or whatever sort of? Yeah, I would maybe I'd be tempted to explore their perspective rather than their alternatives. Yeah, we don't often base our alternatives in reality. We base our alternatives on retrospect and ideals. Yeah, and those two things aren't that healthy, really, because in in, in the circumstance at the time. So, as a leader, if you want to be um, if you want to be transparent and open and honest, then really also what you're saying is you want feedback. And you want that feedback to be genuine and you, and, you, and you want to work on it. But also I would say that in reality, you want it to be focused because there are, you know, there's, there's some elements of leadership that you, you're not going to change yourself overnight. You know, if, if you have a particular style, you probably want to, gonna, you want to refine that style rather than adopt a completely different style. It's not sort of in line with your personality. So I think if you, if you want that sort of feedback from someone, you might be better asking more questions about their perspective. So I use, can you tell me more about that quite a lot? Or can you tell me what you were thinking? Can you tell me what you were feeling? Um, those kind of questions. Um, because they help you to, to, get that, to, to get that person's viewpoint of you, really. Yeah. Um, sorry, just one second. I just need to tell my daughter or something. <laughs> sorry. okay <laughs> i yeah uh, i often have uh, my children popping in the dog and all sorts of things so 
the, the last question I have for you, we've been talking for ages, but I just find this so interesting. It's been such a really interesting and useful interview. If a head was going into a school, and this is the last question, if a head was going into a school that had poor behaviour, what would you advise them to do? Um, I think that's a really interesting question. I was just going to say, the massive question probably, isn't it? Yeah, because there's there's a... There's a there's a there's a there's a real acknowledgement here that we've got to understand that relationships take time to build. So, you know, you say say you walk into into school and and behaviours um, poor. As a transition from really poor behaviour to improved behaviour, expectations and boundaries um, are a really important part of that. But it depends on the on the staff's relationships with the children, how quickly I think you could transition to um, if you wanted to be relational, you wanted to have a restorative approach, how quickly you could you could bring that into force, basically. So obviously the 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 um, the, the advocate when people advocate for punishment and consequences um, and sanctions, one of the things they talk about is it's very visible. So it's obvious what your um, what your kind of you know what the rules are, but I think that you could quite quickly establish boundaries and expectations, um, and it's it's in line with I would say how quickly can you establish a sense of community. So if you if you are a strong leader and you're visible and you are um, you know you can hold that that school and that community and help them feel safe um then and you can build that sense of community quickly then i don't think you necessarily need um like a big wash of sanctions and and punishments and 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 rewards i think you need to make sure that the child the, the children and the young people know that you care about them and the staff know that you care about them and that you want to listen to them and you want to understand their needs and um, you want to keep them safe. Um, but I think it really comes back to, because what I'm really curious about, and, and I'm going to try and find out a lot more about it, is how you analyse and assess the needs of a community um, and how when when things happen that um, and those needs aren't met, that causes hurt for the community and how you repair that hurt. Because that essentially is like what a schooling crisis looks like, I think, is you know a lack of community a lack of um, overall sense of um, togetherness. And, and that's so, yeah, to, do with, yeah. to do with culture as well, isn't it? There are loads of questions I wanted to ask you that I've not had a chance to ask you. And I realise we've been talking for a very long time um, about zero tolerance and silent corridors and all those <laughs> sorts of things. No, no pen equals detention and things like that. But I can guess what you would say about those things anyway, probably. <laughs> um, so thank you so much for joining us. There is oh, you're just- very welcome huge huge amounts to take away today um i'm sure that people who've listened to that will be you know there'll be a lot of food for thought a lot of takeaways from it um you'll have to come on again and we can talk about zero tolerance and all those other things <laughs> um, yeah definitely I have, I, have, I have quite strong opinions on zero tolerance I, I can imagine you do <laughs> but uh, if you if you join us again that would be great if people want to find you where can they where can they find you um so i've i'm on twitter and uh, my twitter handle is andrew earl zero 
Um, and I do have a website as well, which I'm trying to um, kind of, I've only, I've only got one blog on there so far, but I'm trying to build up my um, blog insighty thoughts on the world. Um, and that's www.theempathyguy.co.uk. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's yeah. been really great to have you on the show. Yeah, oh, it's been great to be here. Thank you for inviting me on. You're welcome. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. Wow, I really enjoyed that conversation. I could have talked to Andrew all day about restorative approaches uh, because I suppose in essence it's about people or understanding people and building relationships and dealing with conflict courageously. And that's something that it seems like most people struggle with. And I think Andrew went through a few different ways that you can use to approach conflict that will be really useful to you. And to be honest with you, I think this restorative approach and this idea of the skills that you need to build relationships effectively, it should be on the curriculum. You know, everyone should be learning this stuff. One of the things that Andrew said, and this is the, the key to everything for me, is that we need relationships, connection and nurture to thrive. And that's not just children and young people. Adults need those things to thrive too. And as leaders, we have to be constantly thinking about how we are building those relationships, how we are creating those connections and how we are nurturing our pupils and our staff. Because unless we do that, unless we make a conscious effort to do it, then we're not going to have the same impact. And being conscious in the way we have relationships is so important. Being aware of it, being aware of how you interact with other people, how you build relationships with people, how you create those connections and understanding what we need to do when things go wrong as well is a really important part of what Andrew, Andrew's work is about really. What we need to do to put things right and rebuild a relationship. And these are all skills that we all need to develop. Every single one of us, it's about, it's that idea of what it is to be human. And we could all benefit from developing these skills. Because if we can understand each other better, we can work together better and we can get better outcomes for everyone. So really hope that you're taking a lot from Andrew's for the interview with Andrew today even if you don't totally agree with the restorative approach to behaviour management I hope there are some things that you can take from it in terms of the way that you build and develop relationships so I am now opening up cohort five of the women lead well group coaching program and that will be starting in january so if you are interested in that you can get in touch with me via social media through the we lead well page on facebook which i would love you to join or you can contact me via twitter just search the we lead well podcast and you'll be able to send me a, a message on that or you can find me via LinkedIn and message me on there. I would love you to join us. The women who've been on the courses so far have found them very, very useful in terms of their own personal and professional development. And I'm also opening up the Women Lead Well Network 
to everyone and I would love you to join that. I think that if we can create more supportive networks for women to connect with each other, the more we can gain and the better we can look after our own health and well-being and our leadership. So if you would like to join the Women Lead Well Network, just get in touch with me as well and I can tell you all about it. We do a monthly coaching call. Uh, we have a monthly coaches couch and we have a, a community on a, a platform that you can join where we can interact with each other and support each other in all sorts of different ways. So if you'd like to join that, do use any of the methods that I mentioned before to get in touch. Well, that is the one year anniversary episode complete. Thank you for listening over the last year. Carry on listening for the next year and I will speak to you next time. Take care of yourself, take care of your staff and lead well. This episode of the We Lead Well podcast was brought to you in partnership with Transform Education Coaching, headteacherchats.com and Teach Well Alliance.